welcome to Age Abuse and Justice, where each episode I summarise an elder abuse case to demonstrate what elder abuse looks like and how the law deals with it. My name is Tanya Chapman and today I'll be looking at a murder case. I'm always reluctant to do cases of murder as examples of elder abuse because it seems like a grab to do a more titillating case for attention and it's the more obvious form of elder abuse. The reason I'm doing this case is that it highlights the risk involved with older persons who are vulnerable, who have greater care needs and are reliant on others to look after them. This murder happened in 2017 and it got quite a bit of media attention. So I might only need to say the words wheelchair and garden pond for you to recall the case I'm going to talk about today. You might have seen pictures in the paper of this garden pond and recall thinking that it doesn't look very deep at all. How could anyone die there? Or you might, after hearing this, go onto the internet and look for those photos. And I did it and I recommend you do it because it helps you understand this case. But first, a little background. Background. Peter and Helen Dancy married in 1973. Peter was a statistician with the Australian Bureau of Statistics and Helen was a hospital microbiologist. They also had an Angora goat farm where they lived in the Adelaide foothills. In 1995, when Helen was about 45 years old, she had a stroke. She never fully recovered and was left with cognitive problems and weakness in her right leg. She was left with little short-term memory, and she was only able to speak in short sentences. She got around using a wheelchair. She was unable to return to work, and Peter became her full-time carer. Over time, people questioned the level of care provided to Helen by Peter. Their son, Grant Dancy, was one of the people not satisfied with the care Helen was getting. According to him, Peter would shout at her and only did the bare minimum. Grant said Helen's clothes were unwashed, her hair was matted, and she smelled. She would often fall over because Peter refused to put in any handrails or ramps. Friends and family were concerned that Peter wasn't looking after her well enough. The matter was taken before the South Australian Civil and Administrative Tribunal, who determined that Peter needed some assistance looking after Helen. So for the period from 2004 to 2009, the public advocate was appointed with Peter to be joint guardian for Helen, the South Australian Public Advocate is a statutory official appointed to promote the rights and interests of a person with mental incapacity. Where there's no one else able to act on behalf of a person, the Public Advocate can be appointed to make substitute decisions for that person, in particular decisions around the healthcare that person receives, medications and medical treatment, lifestyle including social contacts and accommodation, so where that person lives. Where a person doesn't have capacity to make those decisions for themselves, a guardian can make those decisions. But if the guardian isn't able to, the public advocate can be appointed. In this case, it was decided that Peter could continue to make medical and lifestyle decisions for his wife, but under the supervision and authority of the public advocate. So when making decisions about where Helen lived and the medical treatment she was to receive, the public advocate and Peter would make those decisions together. After 2009, the appointment of the public advocate wasn't renewed, so Peter became the sole carer and guardian. In 2007, Peter was appointed as administrator in charge of Helen's property and finances. In 2015, 
Helen was hospitalised with a serious illness and was admitted into a nursing home. Peter and the public advocate were once again appointed as joint guardians to decide at this time what care Helen needed. However, they couldn't agree. Peter wanted Helen to return home, but the public advocate said the house wasn't suitable for someone in a wheelchair. It was suggested that Peter could sell the house and buy another property that was more suitable. Peter refused to do so, saying that he had already spent $40,000 modifying the current house. The dispute was settled in September 2016 when Peter conceded that Helen should stay at the nursing home. Even after Helen moved into the nursing home, there were still concerns about whether Peter was able to act in her best interest. At the time of Helen's death, there was a new application before the tribunal to review whether Peter was appropriate to continue to act as Helen's guardian and administrator. On the date of her death, Helen was 67 years old. She weighed 117 kilos and was considered medically obese. She was unable to walk without help and used a wheelchair. Most of the time, Helen needed assistance out of the wheelchair, but could sometimes use her arms to assist herself. Other than her mobility limitations, Helen was in good health and appeared happy. Her short-term memory was poor, but she was intellectually sharp and could still play chess and do quizzes. In the afternoon on the 16th of April 2017, Peter Dancy picked his wife Helen Dancy up from the nursing home. He helped her stand from her wheelchair and lifted her into his car, and he took her to Veal Gardens in Adelaide, where there are several rock pools. Peter called emergency services at 6.26pm and told them that Helen's wheelchair had gone into a rock pool and he wasn't able to get her out. Helen had drowned. Murder. Peter was charged with intentionally killing Helen for financial and relationship motives. The prosecution's case was that Peter deliberately pushed Helen's wheelchair into the water with the intention of killing her. There was no independent eyewitnesses who saw the events. The case relied on circumstantial evidence, and as such, it wasn't enough to show that Peter most likely intended to kill Helen. It had to be shown that in taking all the evidence into account, the only rational interpretation that could be drawn is that Peter intended to kill Helen. Peter's defence Peter argued that the death was an accident and that he had tried to save Helen. Peter elected not to give evidence in court. For those who aren't aware of it, an accused has the right to refuse to give evidence in their trial, and the court is not allowed to make any assumptions or deductions about why the accused is refusing to give evidence. Peter's story was that he pushed Helen's wheelchair onto a sloping rock next to the pool because he thought it would be more stable there and to allow her to see the ducks. The wheelchair was side onto the pond. It was about 6pm when he realised it was getting dark and they needed to leave, but when he went to turn the wheelchair around, it wouldn't move. He told Helen to take the brakes off and suddenly both she and the chair had fallen into the water. Peter threw his phone and keys towards a nearby tree and got into the water. It came up to his chest. He said he tried to roll Helen over but wasn't able to. He could feel her arms moving, but he said he couldn't recall much else that happened. He said he was in the water 15 to 20 minutes. He then got out and phoned for an ambulance. He waited for the ambulance and police to arrive, and by that time, Helen was no longer moving. Let's have a look at what happened that night in more detail. So, Peter called 000 at 6.26pm. The call lasted just under 7 minutes. 
Peter described their movements at the park and it was 1 minute and 10 seconds into the phone call before the operator became aware that Helen is still in the pond. The operator suggested that Peter try to lift Helen's head out of the water. Peter replied that he had tried those actions but she was too heavy. During the phone call, the operator told him 12 times to lift Helen's head out of the water, but he made excuses about why he couldn't do that, including that he had bad knees and diabetes. The operator suggested that he roll her to the edge as she would be buoyant. There was a pause before Peter tells him that the ambulance officers have arrived. Peter conveyed no urgency during the call and no interest in getting back in the pond to try to keep Helen's head above the water. Prosecution argued that his lack of urgency in this phone call was intentional to ensure that she could not be resuscitated. The defence argued that Peter's lack of urgency was because he already knew it was too late, that Helen was already dead. Peter argued that he didn't want to get back into the water because he was afraid he wouldn't be able to get out. But he had gotten himself out before, and he also knew that an ambulance was on the way, so even if he did get stuck, it wouldn't be for long. A paramedic arrived at about 6.29pm. They found Peter, he was wet up to his belly button, but seemed calm. Peter explained to them what had happened. At 6.34, police arrived and lifted Helen's body out of the water. Peter spoke with a police sergeant soon after, and this time said that they had come to the park to feed the ducks, that Helen had leant down and took the handbrake off, and then went into the water. By 7pm, Peter was being interviewed by police at the scene, part of which was video recorded, and a written statement was prepared. The interview went for about an hour. After signing the statement, Peter continued to speak with police, and his topics included that he had bought his silver Mercedes from a car yard on Glen Osmond Road, that he had been in a car accident and had gotten some insurance money, that they had sent their son to Burnside Primary School, but that he lives in Norway now and it's not very nice, that he looks after a lot of Chinese students who study winemaking, most of them have gone back to China, and when they got married they invited him back for the wedding. Shenyang, a city in China, has a big agricultural complex and once a year he is put in the official residence as a visiting professor. A policeman at Beachport was the biggest crook he knew. Peter was too young to go to university so he went to Beachport and got a job as a crayfisherman. He also had a commercial pilot's license and had enough money to build his house in Burnside when he was 20. The cold didn't bother him. There was one instance in Istanbul when he was snowing and he was walking around in shorts and a t-shirt. I'm telling you some of the stuff he spoke to police about to kind of give you an indication of his lack of urgency and lack of emotion. His wife has just died. He witnessed her drown and was unable to save her. And these are the things he's talking about. This might give you an idea of why police were suspicious of him. Later that night, Peter was taken to the police station and he was interviewed at 9pm. The interview ended just after midnight. He wasn't being interrogated the whole time, at times they were writing notes and preparing his statement. During the interview, Peter was asked if he was seeing another woman. Peter rambled and mentioned a female friend in China he'd been speaking to on the internet. He said she was 58 and didn't have any money. He said that she was after her husband, but he had told her she would never get a visa to Australia. Peter described their online conversations as steamy, but said that he was bored and it was only talking. The police searched Peter's car at the scene and found his watch, wallet and a change of clothing. Police found a condom in Peter's wallet, which he tried to explain a couple of ways. He said he got it free in a hotel room, that it had been in his wallet six to eight years, and that one of his PhD students had told him that her supervisor was trying to get her pregnant and she didn't know how to put on a condom, so he showed her. 
Peter's house was searched between midnight and 3am and took about an hour. Police found a travel bag with condoms and Viagra tablets. The police and Peter returned to the gardens at about 3am and produced a map of the route Peter took. When police took Peter to the gardens in the early hours of the morning, Peter told them that he had been going to the gardens for the last two weeks, but that it was Helen's first time there, and that he had spoken with a funeral home several months earlier about funeral costs. It just seems that he couldn't shut up. When explaining the events again, Peter said he could have supported her head to keep her face out of the water, but he was concentrating more on getting her out of the water entirely. He also said that he didn't stay in the pond and support her head because he thought she wouldn't last very long in the cold water anyway. The court's ruling. There are nine interesting aspects of this case I want to draw your attention to. 1. The watch. The police had found Peter's watch in his car. Peter said that the watch had been in the car for several days and that it was an Amani and he had taken it off to do work on the ute. However, police obtained CCTV footage from that day that showed that Peter was wearing a watch at the nursing home when he picked Helen up. He was still wearing the watch at 3.40pm when he went to a convenience store. The court found that the fact that Peter left his watch in the car, as well as the fact that he had a change of clothes for himself but not Helen, indicated that he knew he was going to get wet while in the gardens. 2. The Rock Pool The rock pool where the events happened was not close to any of the paths, and the area around the pond was not flat. So you would have to leave the path to go near the pond, and pushing a wheelchair up the sloping lawn would have been difficult, especially for Peter who was described as 70 years old, unfit and overweight. It was a lot of effort to go to for a man who previously didn't take his wife out of the nursing home even once in a five-month period. It just also happened to be the only rock pool in the gardens where a person could in fact drown. The other ponds were either too shallow or couldn't be approached by wheelchair. Peter could have tried to argue that this was a coincidence. After all, there were five separate rock pools in the gardens. How could he be expected to know how deep each of them were and which one was the deepest? He could have made this argument if he hadn't been so chatty. Peter admitted to the police that he had previously poked a stick in the ponds to see how deep they were. Peter had said that when Helen released the brakes, she was just suddenly in the water. However, the court found that the wheelchair could not have entered the water without external force. Peter said that Helen was too heavy to lift out of the water, but the water was only waist high and the bottom of the pond was concrete. He could have helped her to stand up in the water. The CCTV footage from the nursing home showed that Helen was able to stand for short periods with assistance and that Peter was able to lift her to a standing position. He did so to get her into the car and he would have had to to be able to get her out of the car at the gardens. So he could have helped her to stand and then kept her standing until help arrived. At the very least, he could have held her head out of the water so she could breathe. Peter claimed that the water was freezing and the water fountain was impeding his rescue attempts. However, the water temperature would have been 18 degrees and the fountain landed only in one small area. 3. The Planning From November 2016 until 17th March 2017, Peter had not taken Helen out of the nursing home at all. Yet in the month before her death, he took her out eight times, with the last occasion being the fatal visit to the gardens. He started to take her out after the 17th of March, 
This suddenly taking her out for trips away from the nursing home after a long period of not taking her out at all was seen as consistent with an intention to kill her. Four, unemotional and chatty. During his interviews with police, Peter appeared unaffected by the death of his wife just moments before, and he regaled them with stories of his successes and the people being grateful to him. The court accepted that Peter has an unusual personality and can be conversational. However, they said it did not entirely explain his lack of distress and emotion. Instead, the court found that Peter's conversation showed a lack of care and empathy for his wife and an obsession with money. 5. What was he doing for 20 minutes? Peter said that he was in the water for approximately 15 to 20 minutes, but he can't say what he was doing for all that time. Prosecution alleged that he was delaying the call for the ambulance to prevent any chance of resuscitation. The defence side argued instead that Peter was obstinate and just lacked insight. It was lack of insight that led him to place the wheelchair on a slanting rock close to the water, and which caused him to be fixated on one method to rescue Helen without trying any others. However, the court referred to the fact that he had the insight to throw his phone and keys to the ground before getting in the water. It also wasn't only a moment of time he wasn't able to account for. It was 10 to 20 minutes. 6. Internet searches. In the lead-up to Helen's death, Peter was researching funerals, despite the fact that Helen was in good health. In the seven weeks before Helen's death, Peter not only did internet searches for funerals, but he also searched for sexy stilettos or knee-high boots, sexual role-playing, single women in China, and a visa to visit China. He was messaging at least two women on the internet with conversations of a sexual nature. 7. Financial motive, the cost of Helen's care. Helen's accommodation had recently changed from respite care to permanent care. As a result, her fees changed from $49 a day to $100 a day. A new employee with a public advocate, Miss Rosman, had been appointed to Helen's case. Miss Rosman wanted to move Helen to a different nursing home that had gardens and a cat. She also wanted to arrange for Helen to get her eyes checked, to get glasses, to start physio again, and to have medical and dental checkups. Peter was opposed to all of this. He refused to visit Helen if she was moved to another nursing home, regardless of whether it would be a better place for her. Remember, she's only 67 years old, and she's in good health, so she's expected to live in this nursing home for quite a while. And it makes sense to make her as comfortable there as possible and make sure it's the right place for her. But Peter was opposed to any changes. He considered all the money in the relationship to be his and resented spending any of it on Helen. And I'm not just assuming this. He told Miss Rosamond that he was a wealthy man and that he should not have to spend his money on Helen. When Peter said that Helen didn't have the money to attend her brother's funeral, Miss Rosamond said that she would apply for Helen's finances to be reviewed as well as Peter's action as administrator of Helen's finances. There was no reason she shouldn't have enough money to attend her brother's funeral. I had mentioned tribunal hearings earlier, where friends and family had said that Peter wasn't caring for Helen, and they'd made applications to the tribunal, and he had to defend himself before the tribunal, and that there were currently proceedings underway yet again. So Peter said that he had spent about $100,000 dealing with the tribunal so far, and he was going to have to do that again with a hearing set for July in 2017. So in that way too, Helen's ongoing care was causing him financial cost. 8. Financial motive. 
Helen's pension and estate. Helen received a pension from her superannuation. At the time of her death, it was approximately $47,000 a year. Before she was living in the nursing home, Peter was able to claim $12,000 a year for providing full-time care to Helen. This amount was paid out of Helen's pension, and he wasn't able to claim it after September 2016. So for a while there, Helen's invalidity was allowing Peter to make some money, but once she moved into permanent care, that was cut off. Now that Helen had died, Peter was able to claim a spousal benefit of $32,000 a year. The property and bank accounts were in joint names, and so they go to Peter, and he was also the sole beneficiary under Helen's will. Peter also received Helen's accidental death insurance of $15,000. So Helen's death not only saved Peter a lot of money, but it also allowed him to get some more money as well. 9. Relationship Motive Peter's relationship with his wife had changed. He had become callous towards her, not wanting to spend any money on her, even if it was for her health and well-being. He had been chatting online with a woman in China named Sophia, and the conversation had been sexual. Two days after Helen's death, Peter called Singapore Airlines and Flight Center to check flights to China for mid-May or early June. Five days after Helen's death, Peter asked his sister to email Sophia for him because the police had his computer. Within three weeks of Helen's death, Peter was talking with Sophia on the internet and on the phone about his plans to visit her in China. A month after Helen's death, police conducted another search of Peter's house. This time they found sex toys and female clothing, including a corset, G-string, suspenders, and leather dress and mini skirt. The packed suitcase and sexual items and clothing found at the house indicated that the planned trip to China was of a sexual nature. Verdict. The court found beyond reasonable doubt that Peter deliberately and with the intent to kill Helen pushed her wheelchair into the pond and she drowned. He was guilty of murder. He was sentenced to life in prison with a non-parole period of 25 years. Justice Lovell described Peter's actions and said, Yours was an evil and despicable act. Helen, your loving and devoted wife for over 40 years, had simply become a burden to you. This was a chilling planned murder of a person whose mistake was to trust you. End quote. Peter has appealed that decision. The appeal is still being heard. Helen's son, Grant Dancy, sees this case as an example that the system doesn't work. He described the initial tribunal process as follows. The process went on for years. Dad would make promises about mum's finances or care but never keep them and didn't face any consequences. It was outrageous. End quote. But could anyone really see this coming? You could argue that for many years, Helen was left at home with her husband and that he provided, at best, substandard care for her, and at worst, negligent care and verbal abuse. However, at the time of her death, she was living in aged care. She should have been in a better position here because it wasn't her husband who was caring for her anymore, and even though he was opposed to improving her situation, there was no indication that she wasn't getting appropriate care only that it could have been more suitable for a woman of her relatively young age. Who could have predicted that it was once she was in aged care that Peter would take steps to kill her? 
So that was the case of The Queen vs. Dancy. If you have any thoughts on this case or recommendations of cases for me to cover, I'd love to hear them. You can email them to me at elderservice at legalaid.newsouthwales.gov.au. A big thank you from the Elder Abuse Service for listening in. And if you have identified or if you are at risk of elder abuse, you can call 1800 353 374. Or if you are on the New South Wales Central Coast, you can contact our service on 02-4324-5611. Helen received an invalidity... Helen received an invalidity... An invalidity... Helen received an invalidity... Validity, invalidity. Oh, how do you say? Helen received a pension from her superannuation.